Can we talk something else? Can we talk about something else? not every night that I sleep with a hatchet nearby, that the thought of a shadow sneaking up to envelop the bed and consume my family overcomes my already tenuous grip on reality. The doors are locked, windows secured, and still. Maybe he's been in the house all day. Maybe he's just waiting for my breathing to even out, to slow and become that old song of vulnerability. Every morning after one of these... I don't know what they are. Mental breaks? I pulled that hatchet. Okay, hatchets. I have two. From under the bed, return them to the shed, and shake my head at myself. What a strange and jumpy character I become at times in the night. In the daylight, I don't know that guy. Under the sun, it feels like maybe there actually was a stranger in the house. Some neurotic, wild-eyed schizo peeking out through the blinds with hands full of hatchet handle at 2 a.m. It's me, I know, but it doesn't feel like me in the day. It just doesn't feel like me when the birds are chirping. It's an intense hour, too. 3 a.m. gets all the glory for being so odd, for being the time when that calm comes over everything, when the only sound is... Maybe the earth spinning on its axis. The bugs, the air, even, seems to spook at 3 a.m. But at 2, the energy is up. The random mad thoughts scream at you. With you. At 2 a.m. 3 is when every noise of the house pops like a branch underfoot in a silent wood. The ego evaporates, the mind malfunctions. It's the time for skittish thought. Doubt. Regret over the temptations met then satisfied in the hours leading up to and then followed through the stroke of two. We are empowered by the dark, all the way up until its peak, at 3 a.m. itself. This is when the mood shifts. The power cuts and a void is left until the light can gather its senses once again. I don't care what my morning version, my daytime self will think of me while I'm up busy wrestling demons at 2 a.m., That rosy-cheeked, cocksure fellow is lucky I'm not making it possible for him to feel anything. Crazy, sheepish, self-critical. He forgets how terrifying it is to be the front line of defense for a family when the night gets witchy. He's a bitch. Out buying toilet paper on the eve of the apocalypse. Shit tickets. Rushing to hang out with a crowd of dummies as a pandemic rears its ugly head. Hyperventilating at the Costco. Oh, there's been an extremely deadly and contagious virus that's been floating around since December. Honey, I hear there are large numbers of fucking idiots panic buying. I'm going to go be one of them. You want anything? Uh, Just the virus. Just the virus itself, dear. Your mother's visiting this weekend. That would be lovely. 
Anyways, I'm not afraid of the virus as much as I am of how people will respond to its wrath as a result of our collective stupidity. My night self won't be caught sleeping when the freaks come out in droves. My family ripped a shit BTK style while I attempt to chew a hole in the bag wrapped around my face. Not on my watch, buddy. Not gonna happen. I'm dual-wielding hatches from a dead sleep of a mouse queefs in the basement. My mint squeaks in the basement. <laughs> I meant, but I'm throwing at my back in a queef too. A mouse queef. I'm up. Swinging. It's not every night that I lose it like this. It really isn't. This is the result of too much true crime. Of watching unsolved mysteries before bed. Of a lifetime spent mentally preparing for a monster to climb in through a window and just kill me already. Smash my head in, rape them, strangle my wife and light the house on fire. Leaving my kids to die under their beds from smoke inhalation. Fear, really, maybe just straight up flames as they try to escape too late. Yanking on a window to no avail as their literally numb-skulled father had previously double-locked it with a broken broomstick. This is how it goes in my twisted mind. Some nights. Not every night. But some. And I'm a man. You know? On paper, at least. I can't imagine what it would be like to be a young woman on my own, reading about all the horrible shit one can consume if so inclined. Learning about insatiable rapists, serial killers out for trophies made of lady parts, kidnappers motivated by the fantasy of having a sex slave. Damn it, I don't know why you girls, ladies, put yourself through this shit. What's wrong with you? Fellas? What's the plan here? (laughs) Seriously. This is masochism. And what the fuck is my deal? Am I a sadist? Do I enjoy scaring people, shocking them with horrible shit that happened to other people? That's kind of sick. Ah well. Here we are, holding hands in the dark. That is, uh... That's your hand, right? That's your hand? What is that? I know what it is. At least part of it. It's knowing your enemy. Knowing what is out there on the hunt so you can maybe learn how to avoid becoming prey. You're staying vigilant. On the defensive. I respect that. I live that. I've never met a shower curtain that I didn't peek behind with... My fist raised, leg up. I've not once taken a walk through the woods and felt at peace. Alone. I don't see a trash bag under a bush or a suitcase in the ditch. I see discarded body parts. Babies in a bag waiting to be spilled free. But for all this paranoia, this mental prep, this lunacy, I know that if I'm ever going to get caught with my guard down, it's not going to be by some butcher stepping out from hiding in the kitchen cupboard at midnight. It's going to be by someone I know. Someone I think I know. Just like in the story that I have for you here. To kick off the reboot of the most paranoid podcast out there. If you've been waiting for me to come home, thank you for leaving the light on. And if you're new, well then, welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 010, A Bad Feeling. Silva Rojas is inconsolable. The 25-year-old is at a loss to explain his actions. He can only repeat that he is sorry, though it is not clear if he means for what he has done or for what he now understands to be the action that ended his world. 
Javier had been an apathetic hipster type in his former life, a life that ended when he'd gotten greedy, become a villain, a pillager of sorts in this foreign land of America, a player, well-dressed and handsome, armed with beautiful shoulder-length brown hair, an artsy little mustache to distract from his patchy beard. The money he'd made as a coffee shop barista, charming customers with his looks and exotic accent, surely hadn't been enough to pay for the condo he lived in, or for the cars he often rented. He'd been on a roll in the U.S., in New York, Queens to be exact. Women seemed to fall from the sky and into his lap, their money somehow slipping into his pocket in the process. Javier was enjoying himself so much that he'd failed to leave the country after his 90-day pass in the States with the visa waiver program expired. It is now 2020, February. It has been a year since he was arrested for murder. And it looks as if he won't be returning home to either Venezuela or Portugal, the countries from which he holds dual citizenship, for quite some time. He knows he should have gone home, back in the summer. The sentence to be laid down in May is predicted by many to be of 30 years to life. He'll be returning from his adventure a little later than expected, if ever. His family will be strangers by then, the young version of himself forever frozen on Instagram. With any luck, he'll return home in his late 50s. No longer a young man, sure, but at least men like Javier's tend to age well. He'll still be in position to bet a few more women before his life is through. It seems unbelievable that he can even dream of a future after having erased one in the way he had... Javier hides behind his hair as he's led into the courtroom. He cannot believe his predicament, finds it preposterous that his clothes are now exclusively orange, that as winter melts away, he will still be in New York, a place that seemed so full of promise when he first arrived the spring previous, full of opportunities, marks, and now is only a vast prison. It is astonishing what a year can bring, staggering how a life can change with a couple of wrong turns, how human existence can change. Rumor has it that somebody ate a bat on the other side of the world and now everybody's about to be locked up. Javier feels like he ate something dicey from a wet market himself. A cane toe, perhaps. This is a fucking trip. He should be back home. Valerie Reyes should be nothing but a pleasant memory from the time he spent here. A picture on Instagram to look back fondly upon. What a nightmare. De Silva rests his head on a table, his wrists and ankles cuffed, and cries as his sentencing date is read out by the judge. The whole thing is just so fucking stupid. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape, where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12 infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. 
make your lungs happy, and try Zipix, nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Valerie Reyes is still very much alive back in late January of 2019. She is a beautiful 24-year-old, striking brown eyes, jet black hair, petite at 5'3", but large in spirit, silly, and fun to be around. When she isn't depressed, that is. Valerie suffers from anxiety attacks, dark moods. She pours her contrasting perspectives into her art. The young woman is an aspiring tattoo artist and practices privately creating portraits of friends and family from their social media posts. In her lonely basement apartment in New Rochelle, New York, sits one particular piece of art that, unbeknownst to her, is an image of her future killer. A young man with movie star hair, brooding eyes, an artsy mustache to distract from his patchy beard. Those eyes, recreated by her own hand. Watch her. Look over Valerie as she struggles to find a comfortable position to fall asleep in. Valerie Reyes has a bad feeling as she curls up. She chalks it up to being alone in the underground apartment, having recently broke up with her live-in boyfriend. The portraits keep her company. The one of Javier is of particular comfort. He is her ex from a year past now, and since the recent breakup with a different boy, just to be clear... She's considered getting back in touch. It sure is lonely. Spooky, even. To be a pretty young woman living alone for the first time. Fortunately, she has a large, tight-knit family. Her mother is always just a phone call away. Even at 2 a.m., when things begin moving from the corner of Valerie's eye, when benign noises outside start to sound like an intruder shifting his feet before yanking open a yard-level window, she has her mom to call. Valerie has worked at a bookstore for the past three years in Scarsdale, a Barnes & Noble where she had been reading a lot of true crime lately, bringing home books about young women like herself who found themselves at the mercy of a madman in their final moments. Valerie Reyes is beginning to feel like one of these girls. She is suddenly convinced that she will be murdered herself. Her paranoia causes such panic that she wakes in the night with her heart beating out of her chest, the shadows closing in around her. She calls her mom, a call that we'll hear some insight into now, firsthand from her mother, Norma. She was really scared, very frightened. That Monday night conversation we had, um, she was just really scared, very frightened, like I said, and fearing for her life. She didn't mention anything. She didn't mention no one specific. She just mentioned, I'm really, really scared. I'm really, I'm paranoid, mommy. I'm getting anxiety attacks. And she couldn't, she was like hardly, you know, she could have, having a hard time talking. And I, I would tell her, calm down. You need to calm down and tell me, you know, why is it that you're feeling this way? Like, did somebody threaten you? Did you see somebody outside your house? 
obviously I asked about the boyfriend, the ex-boyfriend, um, and she said no. If anything, you know, I felt comfortable him being with me here now that he's, you know, gone because I had broken up on Thursday. Now I'm going to be scared being here, you know, like just continuing with her living there by herself. So she was just really scared about that. It's just the, the whole, um, her being afraid of being in her apartment and mentioning I'm afraid someone's gonna murder me like the women that she sees or or hears about getting murdered and then her story ending up this way it's just like like we wonder who made her feel this way did somebody mention to her somebody's out to get you or something The night after the call to mom about her premonition of death, of being murdered, Valerie Reyes would find herself living her nightmare. Only Javier de Silva Rojas knows all that that nightmare entailed as he was the one to manifest it. But we do know this. Javier had been stealing from Valerie, using her debit card to siphon thousands of dollars from her account since they had first met, dated, parted ways, then began talking about seeing each other again following her most recent breakup with another young man. A young man whom maybe Javier thinks will serve as a patsy to take the fall for what he's planned to do with Valerie. As per his recollection, or at least version, of the events preceding the initial call to police from Valerie's mother to report her daughter missing on January 30th, Javier has this to share. He had arrived on invite to Valerie's basement apartment in New Rochelle, New York on the late evening of January 29th. Investigators would later discover that Javier had switched his phone to airplane mode around this time, maybe thinking he could avoid later tracking of his movements during this period. As per Javier, he and his ex-girlfriend engaged in rough sex that night. This led to them falling off the bed together and Valerie cracking her head open. It is at this point apparent to Javier, Valerie's dead. He panics, attempts mouth to mouth, but she is clearly beyond help. Her head is swelling up like a balloon in cartoonish fashion. A hematoma, he believes it's called. A word thrown around on the television during UFC fights. Surely he will be blamed for this. Surely the fact that he is here illegally at the moment will not help his predicament. Javier does the only thing he can think to do. He stuffs Valerie Reyes into a suitcase, hauls her out to his rental vehicle, and drives across state lines to Greenwich, Connecticut where he dumps the bag in the woods beside a lonely road. He then withdraws over five grand from his dead lover's bank account in the days that follow and waits to be caught. Javier tells himself that he wants to be caught, that that's why he's so brazen about withdrawing the cash. But he isn't captured immediately. It will take some time for Valerie to be discovered as missing, time for the body in the red suitcase to be looked at with suspicion at the side of the road. He could have flown home. He could have turned himself in, but no. Javier de Silva Rojas is an overconfident imbecile. He continues to make withdrawals from the missing girl's account as if this is the natural way to mourn the death of a friend. He sells items stolen from Valerie's apartment, an iPad being one. Valerie would have wanted me to enjoy myself, he maybe thinks. It's not like she can use the cash any longer after what we went through together. A wide search is underway in New Rochelle, New York, for the vanished young lady. Missing posters are strapped to telephone poles. Valerie's family reaches out to a private investigator, 
concerned that the disappearance won't be taken seriously enough. They know their girl. She isn't the type to just disappear. She doesn't just run off and go dark. Hell, the last person to hear from her had been her mother, and the last words she said were that she was feeling much better after a panic attack induced by the overwhelming sense that, in Valerie's own words, quote, I feel like somebody's going to murder me. It's not clear if Valerie felt threatened by anyone in particular. It is the gut sense of family members that she simply had a premonition, a bad feeling, and now every loved one of Valerie's is beginning to have one too. She has to be out there somewhere. But if so, why is the feeling so strong that she is gone? Like gone, gone. Who she was. Even the most recent recollections of the girl feel spectral, dreamlike. And who she is out there, wherever Valerie ended up, is not their girl anymore. It's only a shell left behind. Though it's been less than a week since she disappeared, and in the eyes of the law there is no extreme cause for alarm... They know Valerie. They know she wouldn't put them through this. They know something came in the night and swallowed her. The improvised body bag containing Valerie Reyes sits 15 or so feet off of the desolate stretch called Glenville Road near a lane named Stillman in the woods of affluent Greenwich, Connecticut. Passers-by surely take note of it as they go about their daily commutes, though all who spot the bag chalk it up as discarded trash. Maybe a stolen item too cumbersome to carry. Maybe a lazy hump's way to avoid a trip to the dump. Certainly there are a few who have a bad feeling about it, but nothing so strong that would cause them to pull over and unzip the eerie item. Why the fuck would anyone want to take the time to do that? It is not until February the 5th, a week since Valerie had been stuffed in the bag and placed here by Sweet Javier, that a road worker approaches and without much hesitation unzips the suitcase finally bringing what became of the young woman spilling out into the light. It seems, by the looks of things, that Mr. De Silva has been downplaying things just a little bit. Valerie is barefoot, though mercifully clothed in an unbuttoned shirt and jeans. There is a large lump on her forehead. Her face is streaked with dry blood. There is modeling around the hands, just below the tattoos that will positively identify the girl. Those hands are tied behind her back. Her legs and feet are bound as well. Javier will later explain that it was the only way to fit her into the suitcase. That's fair, Javier, I suppose. But what about the packing tape wrapped around her mouth and chin? What about the autopsy report and its shocking detail that Valerie had died as a result of what the coroner would call homicidal asphyxiation? That she was alive when squeezed into the suitcase. Likely unconscious from the blow to her head, but... Breathing. It is a scene straight from the pages of a true crime novel. A scene maybe more frightening, but somewhat typical of what Valerie Reyes had come across in her own books and felt some disturbing type of kinship with the victims therein. It is an incredibly compromising and ideally private position that we all will one day end up in. Our death pose. Some poses more extreme, more disturbing, macabre, horrific than others, sure. Valerie Reyes is photographed just like the girls from the books. But it is not the authorities that capture this private portrait first. It is the road worker, the man that pulled the zipper open on a bulging red suitcase out in the woods, who takes it upon himself to snap a few shots with the company phone of a clearly murdered young woman. 
and share the pics with a few friends through private message before calling the grizzly discovery in. And of all the horrible things that we've talked about here today, it is of this detail for all of us. But I myself have a bad feeling. And that will do it. I am back. And it's cases like this one that have called me to return to the dark topic format. I'm looking forward to bringing some truly dark topics this time around. Fewer of the large, well-known cases that have burned me out in the past and more of the just outright creepy and disturbing cases, or should I say suitcases, that may not seem exceptionally disturbing at first glance, but like just about anything becomes so upon further, closer inspection. Nothing is what it seems, but everything is darker the deeper you dig. We put all of the nice shit on the surface, on the lawn, the picnic, the radio. The only thing that we all have in common is that under the surface, past the facade, it gets darker. Close down the grocery store. How many of us are sharing that? Close down the grocery store and the taking begins. Keep it closed long enough and the neighbor's stew starts smelling a little gamey. Jimmy doesn't make it back from picking dandelions. We better hope this is a warning shot because clearly... We needed one to get our priorities straight, our shit together. What a bunch of fucking dopes. Complaining about being stuck at home with our families, watching Netflix. The last time a worldwide pandemic ran around, there were much fewer people. If you're wondering what you're going to do for work, I'd suggest buying a horse wagon and a crier belt. <laughs> bring, a, bring out your dad. Bring out your dad. The stand. Steve King, I was reading it again when all this got real and came across a line worth sharing uh, from the stand here. Love didn't grow very well in a place where there was only fear. End quote. I've been trying to think of something positive to say. But a society that struggles with extended family hours isn't going to handle truly hard times with much grace. All that I can offer is to shut the fuck up about it myself and bring some distraction. The crime machine has been dismantled after I decided to put my heart back into Dark Topic uh, right around this time that this, uh, you know, this uh, Eastern Hemisphere flu flew in. But from the demise of uh, Crime Machine came a new podcast that is getting a lot of positive attention. 911 calls with the operator that I hope you'll enjoy in its place. Javier de Silva Rojas will be sentenced in a couple of months. May of 2020 for those listening in the future. I will confirm his sentence, hopefully of 30 years to life, in an upcoming episode of Dark Topic. I'll be back next week. Yeah, just like that. Please rate with a five star or whatever you're in the mood to leave Dark Topic. This is a brand new feed and its visibility relies on ratings and reviews. Thanks. Just five stars, you know, four. (laughs) Anything less, don't bother. Just fuck off, please. I'm still searching for positives here about what's going on in the world. Nature seems happy. That's nice. I hear the air and water aren't complaining. Much needed breather, I'd say. No pun intended for those infected by the bite of this invisible zombie that so many still don't believe in. Somehow. I'm recording this in late February, so maybe the attitude has shifted by the time you hear this. But if you want glaring proof 
If you need a jawless, cloudy-eyed zombie to smash a decomposing arm through your screen door before you believe this shit's as bad as they say, then be careful what you wish for. Because it's coming. Luna, shut the fuck. It's a conspiracy to gain control, man. Do you see what they're doing? It's not. It's not. They already had control, stupid. I'm telling you, if they're scared, we should be terrified. They're shutting the world down, not as a precaution. They're shutting it down because it's already so far to hand that they have no choice. I've been in quarantine for a decade, so don't worry about me. I just hope I can cheer a few of you up by bringing this podcast back. I heard you. I'm at peace with having listened. Hey, and if you're out there like slogging it out, putting yourself at risk because you have no choice, well, then I dedicate this reboot to you. My life for you. M-O-O-N. That spells reboot. <laughs> Until next time, keep those eyes cocked. Those doors locked. Those faces smocked. Those cupboards stocked. That physical condition tip top. Stay paranoid. Thank you. I'll talk to you real soon.